Welcome to Ciao Bella, hosted by me, Erica Firpo, travel journalist based in Rome. Each episode of Ciao Bella, I sit down with Italy's creators, contemporary artists and artisans, designers, culinary experts, heritage brands, and innovative estites, and more who are defining and redefining 21st century Italy. Pull up a chair and join in. Good morning and welcome back to Ciao Bella. Today I am sitting on a rooftop in Trastevere, looking at the geniculum with Giulia Ficara of Grano e Farina. Hey, Giulia. Hey. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to bring you onto Ciao Bella and to introduce you to the Ciao Bella audience because I kind of fell in love with you when I met you. Thank and you. I, and I, and I, I don't fall in love with everyone. <laughs> but I fell in love with Julia because Julia is an expert pasta maker, but it's, it's not just, it, it isn't just that you make pasta. It was your whole, I don't know, it was like this full immersion passion mm. that you, you transmit when you make it. And I would really love to talk with you because I know I, I had the fortune of coming to Grano e Farina, which is a cooking school in Rome's Trastevere neighborhood. And learning to make some pasta with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I really learned was your whole story. And I was, I was captivated mm-hmm. because you don't go from zero to pasta. No, you don't. Uh, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, my story with pasta actually started relatively later in life than maybe other people. Um, I was doing something entirely different up until, uh, what, about 12 years ago now? when, uh, for one reason or another, um, I couldn't do what I was previously doing, and my husband decided on a whim for uh, Valentine's Day that he'd take me to Bologna, and we'd go and do something fun. It was a surprise. He took me to a place called Vecchia Scuola Bolognese, which is one of the preeminent um, pasta rolling schools out there that people refer to, and I did a week-long intensive course and in rolling pasta with a meter-long rolling pin, and completely fell in love with uh, the whole art of it and the movement and um, the repetition, actually. There's something that I kind of enjoy about the repetition of... It's meditative. Do, yes, it is meditative. And so um, it kind of... The activity not only was fascinating and interesting to me and it felt good, but it worked with um, a back problem that I now have to live with not anything major but it definitely it works better with my life than what i was doing before <laughs> wait so you know this is one of those I, i've seen those and, I, and and now thanks to you i've used the meter long pasta rolling pin the rolling pin but i think it's one of those things that you know i that people think is maybe an exaggeration or a stereotype of pasta making can you just just explain to everybody what exactly you're talking about with i, I mean it's it's evident if you say it's a meter long pin rolling right. pin but but people actually use those? Oh yeah, absolutely. The the technique that I that I work with, which is the traditional and professional Bolognese style of rolling a sheet of egg pasta out to its thinnest point, uh, for certain pastas thicker for others, requires a minimum of 90 centimeters. And you can get as long as 120 or 140 centimeter long rolling pin, which is really quite long and is generally used only by professionals. Um, so well, when you say only used by professionals, are there you know one? I think there's this myth that um, it's the nonni, it's the grandmothers that are making these pastas. Are are they using meter-long rolling pins? So um, my nonna never did. Right. <laughs> so when when I talk about the professionals using the long rolling pins, I'm thinking anything over a meter, a meter ten. That's okay. sort of where 
uh, amateur, passionate people. But the longer the rolling pin, the more difficult it gets, and the larger amount of pasta you're working. And okay. more than half a kilo of pasta at a time can be quite uh, a challenge if you don't have a lot of experience. Um, so when I talk about the professionals using okay. the really long rolling pins, for the rest of us, 90 to 110 centimeters works really well. Like I said, less than 90 centimeters, you really don't have enough length of the pin to use this particular movement, which ends up looking like you're doing two circles with your hands when you get it going. The grandmothers don't necessarily always use that long a rolling pin. They will use uh, the same technique, um, but through pasta grannies who I work with, I've come to see uh, grandmothers all over Italy do all sorts of rolling, and they use all, all sizes. The, where I draw the line is that this particular technique that is considered the sort of original professional Bolognese technique of rolling really does require a certain length. So if you're working with less than 90 centimeters, you're not necessarily going to use the same, um, the same kind of flow and uh, rolling and press pressure. You'd have to actually use more muscles. And in fact, that's where you see a very different kind of what looks like and actually is quite heavy muscle work when rolling out uh, your pasta because you can't use the same, you don't have the same breadth of space to work in. You know, um, I'm just curious. You, you said the Bologna, the Bolognese technique. Hmm. Are there are there different? I didn't know that there were different pasta rolling techniques. Well, I think of different pasta rolling techniques in the sense that we have this one that is associated with Bologna or Emilia Romagna mm -hmm. because it is so efficient. If you think about it, you know, if you go to Bologna today, you can go to a trattoria and you can sit down at lunch and everything has been handmade, all hand rolled, no machines involved. You have to have a technique that's going to be efficient, that isn't going to tire you out, and it can be done quickly so that you can get food on the table. And to do that, you need this, you know, perfection uh, of a technique. If you don't have those parameters, or if, you know, you come from an area that doesn't have this long rolling pin, the grandmothers who either didn't have work, had lots of time, um, they come up with their own technique for rolling. There's no one perfect way to do it. There are a million ways you can get to a round, thin, uh, sheet of pasta. I, I sort of divide it into what's more efficient because mm -hmm. my philosophy is about teaching how to get pasta on the table without having to have extra machines or buy boxed pasta. That's my thing. Um, so I don't teach in a way that's going to make pasta making into a project of a half a day. However, if you have time and you're interested, by all means, there are people out there teaching you to rest your pasta for four or five hours and take an entire day to make some fettuccine, and that's that's fine. Well, I think that's kind of you know I, I do feel that there probably is a bit of a stereotype that that's yeah. how it's done. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> and it's it's great that you give that visual of how you know I, something I, I I took for granted. I I love Emilia Romagna. I love eating in Emilia Romagna, and that is kind of the the cornucopia of. The bontà of Italian food, mm. in, in my opinion. Absolutely. Uh, even though my non-non No, no, it's generally con yeah. considered, the, you know, the belly of Italy. It it's is really it's exceptional, good. <laughs> yes, exceptional I, food. And, um, but, you know, I, one thing I, I guess I took for granted, I didn't really even think, I didn't, I mean, I knew that everything was homemade or hand, handmade, hand-rolled, mm -hmm. but I really didn't even think about that, like, as a, logistically and as, as a time-consuming. Well, really, if you think about it, and if you have people who are telling you it takes half a day to make pasta, you think, how would you ever feed anybody in Bologna? Yeah. It's just not possible. So 
again, there are different ways, you know, it doesn't matter. In the end, when I have maybe students who don't take to the technique particularly well, I say, you know, it really doesn't matter how you get to the end result, as long as you're happy with it. If it takes you longer, that's fine. If you really manage to do it, you know, really quickly, then, then you're, then that's great. It's, I can't tell you there's one right way because they get me in trouble. <laughs> Well, you know, when I when I was making pasta with you, what I what I did find because I I think I was intimidated by the rolling pin and I was intimidated by the whole thing, but I do I I do I did find that happy moment, that serendipitous moment where it became I'm not going to say easy, no, but I got in the vibe, I got the meditation, and I and it was it didn't take it took muscle because I definitely had back pain after not back mm -hmm. pain but like sore muscles after mm -hmm. in my upper shoulders, um, but. I got into the groove is what I'm saying and faster than I thought I would. Like yeah. I thought this was going to be like, I'd have to do it every single day for hours and hours just to learn. Yeah. No, no, not. I mean, to get really to a proficiency where you can roll it out in less than 10 minutes and really do major production. Yes. You need a lot of time. And in fact, the muscle pain that you felt is because it was the first time you were doing it and you were tense and all the rest of it. Once you actually learn that technique and you begin to practice it on a regular basis, everybody says it looks like it takes a lot of muscle work. Um, but I don't think it does. It's really not about the amount of muscle. If you have the proper no, hydration... No, you make it look easy. <laughs> well, yes, but, but because I have the technique that allows mm -hmm. it to flow. If you have the proper hydration of the dough and you know how to use that technique properly, of course there's a bit of muscle work, but it's not... Uh, nothing should hurt. I, it, doesn't, it doesn't hurt at the end of the day of making lots of pasta because you begin to learn how to use your body the way, you know, that it needs to work properly. Um, people who, who think it does take a lot of muscles or, or achy all the time, there's, there's something they're not getting there because it really, it really shouldn't be that difficult. It's really not that difficult if, if you manage to get that, uh, the motion right, I think. So you were just traveling back in time. So you mm. had this great weekend, mm. or this great week yeah. of pasta making. You came back to, to your home, yep. and you started making pasta. Yeah, I, I got completely um, pulled into the pasta making over an intensive week of rolling. And I went back. We were living in Paris at the time. And I went back and started making uh, half a kilo to a kilo of pasta every single day had a WhatsApp group that I'd send out messages to all my friends and say, all right, 5 p.m., free pasta, come and get it, because I can't possibly eat all that pasta. What kind of pasta were you making? Oh, just, I was just rolling, constantly rolling, <laughs> constantly rolling, making, you know, tagliolini, tagliatelle, fettuccini, pappardelle, garganelli, farfalle, anything you can do with an egg pasta that's rolled flat. Occasionally, if I wanted some for myself and I had extra, we'd do tortellini or, or ravioli, and I'd has to be reimbursed for expenses. Can I can I ask um, where were you like where were you getting the shapes from or the the, the you know I know there's a difference in mm -hmm. width for the different but you know papartelli and tagliatelle and um, so um, again I know you learned a lot at your yeah. class but I'm just you know okay I guess I'm saying this because I'm the kind of person that forgets. Um, well, so there are there's a whole of course catalog of the absolute precise lengths and widths and sizes of all the kinds of pastas it is quite cataloged if you go to search for it i don't think that italians or italian grandmothers in general stick to that absolute but if you want to be that you know um pignola were you that pignola uh, at the beginning, I was. <laughs> How do we say pignola? If you're that, if you're a stickler, yes, stickler's uh, good. You can you can really get to the point where you're you're doing it absolutely precisely that way. I was going more with the feel of what I thought um, felt good in your mouth based on, 
eating experience, but also a bit of research, not only from having learned at VSB in Bologna, but then a bit of research on my own. At the time, I didn't have the Encyclopedia of Pasta, which I absolutely love, but she explains in that book all of the precise uh, distinctions between all the pasta. Part of it was my own research. Part of it was asking around. Part of it is talking to my husband's family, although they're from the South, Puglia, um, and they don't work egg pastas. Uh, they definitely opened up, of course, a whole new section of pasta for me, which is the Semble and Water tradition, mostly in the South and the islands. Um, in fact, actually, could you just, uh, if you don't mind, kind of give us a topographical idea of that, you know, I don't think a lot of people know, or not, maybe people do, that there's, you know, areas that focus on egg pasta, areas that don't. Well, generally, and I, in my classes, I'll generally talk about how in sort of for the sake of learning, I divide up Italy. It's not a precise division, but there's northern Italy, which is sort of, I don't know, Rome, Lazio, Umbria, and above, and then everything below is being the south. And the reason that I do that is not for today's historical and geographical. It's more about the traditions. In uh, the north of Italy, where it's more humid, you have the tender wheat flour that, that grows. That's the white plain flowers. And because the north of Italy was always richer, they had the ability to use uh, eggs in their pasta. With that particular flour, it works very well. That's where their egg tradition comes from. Ah. You have durum wheat and hard wheat flour, which uh, grows in more arid, dry areas, which is basically the south of Italy and the islands, particularly Sardinia, of course, which is all semolent water. Um, and they were traditionally too poor to allow themselves or to want to use eggs on a regular basis. It was a very special occasion. Um, and that so makes sense. They yeah. really uh, worked more with uh, water and uh, flour. And then there's also the uh, fact that they often have work with um, or eat fish and vegetables, which don't necessarily go very well with egg uh, pasta. So their kind of pasta lends to the, to the kind of, you know, food that they have available to them as well, whereas the North is more meat and based and milk and butter and all those things which go better with eggs. So that's all the, the things general, I like. <laughs> you know, the general idea of trying to explain to people how more or less, um, I, I, in my mind, try and divide up and explain to people how pasta works in Italy. Today, you can't apply any of those rules necessarily because we share it all up and down the boot. But right. That's sort of the way I divide it to make it easy for my international students primarily, and, and Italians too, who, who have generally been pretty happy with that explanation as a generalization. Well, that works for me. I like mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, actually, you, you, that, and this is a good point because let's talk a little bit. So you and Pino, her husband's name is Pino. Mm -hmm. um, thanks to his family, you were learning about the non-egg pastas, let's say, or dough. Um, and then I know, let's, let's give a little background on Pino because... I think that he's pretty integral to the, the next development, which is Grano e Farina. It is, he is. Well, Polino, Pino's originally from Milan, and uh, he too was doing something a bit different in life at the beginning, uh, but had always been involved in food and cooking. It was always his great passion, pastry, in fact. Uh, part of his family has a pastry shop in Reggio Calabria called, yeah, Pasticceria oh, Ficara. I didn't know that, yes. and I was there this summer. Ah. Mm, I should have known. And they, at one time, they were evidently very well known and all that. Now it's still named Pasticceria Ficara, but it's not actually part of the family anymore. Or if it is, it's long cousins. Anyway. <laughs> um, that said, he um, really got seriously back into cooking about 20, 25 years ago, and um, 
between one thing and another, living in New York and then in Paris, uh, we decided we wanted to do our own thing and open up a school here in Italy. He chose to come back uh, and settle in Rome, I and mean, we both did, but he didn't want to go back to Milan. I'd already lived in Rome, and so uh, that's why we ended up here five years ago. And you started Granoe Farina, we which did. is the best name, <laughs> you have you. to admit. Well, it took us a while. We figured we were going to be based in flour, and we wanted something that, that sort of worked for us. So, yeah, we wanted something different because what we offer actually is um, a slightly different service than I think the majority of people out there. Not to say that uh, our colleagues in competition are doing um, something um, not entirely... Um, technical, but we try and um, work really on the very technical side. So it's as if you're coming to a, a vocational school, but you're doing units of four or five hours each, um, rather than coming for a demonstration or entertainment or drink while you cook, which is fine. It's just a different kind of service. We don't do that. We're pretty nitpicky about making you learn the science, the food science and the history and making you get your hands dirty. And I think that's what made me fall in love with you. I liked it because it was serious. We're and big food nerds. That's, that's so, what it was. I yeah. mean, you know, I, I'm a nerd in many different areas. Um, and I, I was never a pasta nerd until I started, I, I, I happenstance came into Granary Farina mm -hmm. and, I, and I loved it. And, um, and I, I, I think you guys, I think you're absolutely right. It's vocational, but I think it's like, I, I almost I remember walking out of there and I said it's almost academic but it's yeah. like practical. Yeah. You know you well, learn we, you learn about what you're eating, you learn about why you're yeah. eating, you learn about how. Yeah. You know. Well, the, the, exactly. We we do approach it quite academically and we do get But in, not in an intense way. Well, um, maybe not for away. you. I think there's some <laughs> people who do find it quite intense. There oh, really? are times, yeah, when people come in and after the first 45 minutes you can kind of see their eyes glaze over and they sit down they're like, "Whoa." way more information than we wanted. So it, it's definitely not for everybody, um, which is fine. Um, but yes, we do try and impart an enormous amount of information and a lot about learning why, why food does what it does so that you understand and you know how to troubleshoot when you get home and you don't have us in front of you. Because if we just hold your hand doing a recipe, and it doesn't come out the same way when you go back home. You don't quite know how to deal with that. So we really try and break it down into uh, very specific um, measurements and units and understanding of how two elements work together so that you can, you know, think about it later on and figure it out for yourself rather than having inconsistent results. It's, it's about making people, trying to get people to think about what they're doing and, and, and understand how to, how to work with what you've got rather than going at it blindly every time. And it's not, I mean, it's not just regulated to pasta. No, no, no. We do, we, we do. We offer quite a bit. Pino, of course, does a whole uh, range of pastry, bread, pasta. He does a butchery and knife skills course. Yeah. That's the course I want to take. It's a good one. Uh, he does a lot of French cuisine when requested. It's not particularly popular, of course, which is unfortunate, but um, he does charcuterie. Um, yeah, and then we have, of course, uh, Johnny Madge, who works with us, who is a great oil sommelier. Um, and uh, we also now offer wine pairings and tastings uh, with a wonderful young sommelier who, um, who we enjoy very much. And then, of course, there are the Pasta Grannies classes, which are great because I've been with uh, 
working with Pasta Grannies on and off for about four years. Can you tell us a little bit about Pasta Grannies? Well, Pasta Grannies is a really wonderful project that was started by a woman named Vicki Benison. Uh, she's a Brit who lives half of the time in Italy. And years ago, she decided that um, older women um, making pasta was a, a really wonderful dying art. Uh, they needed to be brought to the fore. And so she started filming. Uh, these women doing what they do and taking down their stories and putting it on YouTube. So she's got a wonderful YouTube channel. And, um, and then she published a book for which I did all the pasta. Uh, she's coming out with a new one, hopefully, in the next year. So that'll happen as well. May I ask you what the Pasta Granny's course is that you do? Or? So the Pasta Granny's course that I do is um, I do suggest various um, unusual pastas the ones that maybe you won't find on every menu, the ones that come from very bizarre little towns in, in the middle of nowhere, the stuff that we learn when I go and accompany Vicky on these shoots. Uh, sometimes I will find some of the grannies. Sometimes I'll help her produce the shoot. She has other helpers that she works with regularly. But I've been lucky enough to go and travel Italy with her and um, meet these women, learn techniques that are different, pastas that are different, and sort of off the beaten path. You know, I'd love to talk with you a little bit about this kind of disappearing art of pasta or disappearing pastas because um, I think I think a lot of us have gotten into this rote pasta selection mm. and there is, like you were saying, there are a lot of very funky pastas out mm. there um, that, that might be not be getting the light shed on them that right. they need. Um, and I'd love to, you know, and, and I know that the art of pasta, it's, it's a lot about time. It's a lot about, you know, two-income families versus someone who's staying at home and making right. pasta. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I actually don't think that the art of pasta is dying anymore. It's been taken up in the last 10 years by a whole slew of people. It's really come back into the fore. You know, it's no longer only an art of women. The young people who are learning pasta to be professional pasta makers, half of them are men these days, um, meaning handmade pastas, mm -hmm. because men have always been in the mechanization of making pastas. Um, more than the women. I'm talking about the actual handmade stuff. Um, and, of course, we've had uh, a lot of champions around the world, unfor unfortunately or fortunately, mostly men at the moment, uh, <laughs> who have really brought pasta making to this other level. Uh, I th can think of Evan Funky. All right. Um, there's also a guy named Matteo Zelenka in the UK. Um, we do have women who are... Who are great pasta makers and who are bringing it um, into the public uh, realm, but they don't seem to get quite the um, hoopla that the men are at the moment, which I think is a kind of unfortunate, considering it was a woman's thing to begin with, but I'm not going to knock it. You know, well, I, I think it's wonderful whatever way, I know, whatever <laughs> way we get pasta out there and get people, I think, off of boxed pasta and getting your hands, you know, into your food, that's, that's a great thing for me in my mind. So I don't think it's dying. I think it's really taking off. I think people have found a new passion, particularly during COVID. Oh, um, for sure. Like we said earlier, it's meditative. There's something very therapeutic about it. It's nice to know where your food comes from. It's enjoyable to make it. Um, so it's a great thing to do with kids, obviously. So. What are um, two questions for you? So my first question actually just made me think about this. As, as somebody who is always behind the eight ball of time. Mm. Um, but I, you know, and I, to be honest, I'm not 
I grew up eating a lot of pasta mm -hmm. in my life, which has turned me into the anti-pasta person. Yeah. I mean, my favorite pasta that I could eat every day is gnocchi, but aside right. from that, <laughs> you know, I, I take, I, I plead the fifth or whatever. I, I take a, I, I hold up my yellow card and mm -hmm. walk off the field or the red card because I'm not, I, I, I've, I've never been, I, I ate too much of it in my yeah. life. Well, Pina's the same way. He, for a while, he just, off pasta, off tomato sauce. He's like, I don't want to see it. Yeah, I, did, I just didn't need it. He's but, back. But. <laughs> well, I'm slowly coming back. And actually, yeah. I have to say, I got a little kickstarted by you. Yeah. And I'd love to ask you what, what for for the... I, I want to ask two questions. One, we I want to ask you about disappearing pastas. Mm -hmm. And then I want to ask you about what are the kind of pastas that the average person should consider, you know, learning and making at home as opposed to buying? Um... Well, I can't, I can't really think of what the disappearing pastas are in the sense that I think there are pastas out there that people don't know about and they haven't been um, either put into um, circulation in restaurants or necessarily in books, which will generally present to you the sort of standard pastas that you make. And so I don't know that they're necessarily disappearing as much as they're not being promoted okay. uh, as much as they could. Because there's always somebody out there who's who's doing it. And I think with the interest, there are so many young people who are now going and searching for the disappearing pastas that, that they're not, they're really, really held. Yeah. Okay. Um, in terms of making pasta at home, I think if you've got kids and you want to do something fun and have an activity where they really get into cooking, all the semola and water pastas are really easy and great. You don't need equipment. Uh, you don't need an enormous amount of skill. The cavatelli is a really easy one to make. Maloreddu, which are the Sardinian gnocchi, which are made with semolina and water, which you use a little gnocchi board for. It's basically a ridged cavatelli. Uh, there, there are quite a few that are really nice. Um, if you like to have equipment, um, there are pastas that you can make with minimal equipment, but you do need it, like spaghetti alla chitarra. That's a, a, a guitar, we call it, but it's actually sort of a grid of a guitar... Um, wires that you press a sheet of pasta over and it makes sort of a square spaghetti and you don't need a long rolling pin for that you don't need a big board for that so those are things that you can do in modern smaller kitchens if you're really into the technical side then of course and you've got the equipment the long rolling pin the large board you've got space then you know getting into rolling sheets of pastas uh, is the way to go i think because I because I love doing it. <laughs> do you have a favorite pasta? I do not. I love all pasta. You know what I want to make with you? What? what I want to learn how to make with you. <laughs> Anytime. Tortellini. Ah, tortellini. Great. I don't know why. I like just it. Just as you were talking, I was mm. like, oh my god. I because I, I also want to know like the carne that you are using. I want to mm -hmm. like learn. You know, maybe that's like the pinot side of things. I don't know. I want to make it with you. <laughs> Actually, all of our all of our recipes that we use uh, are are taken from the comune, from where the the recipe originated. We do not improvise. We do not go with um, variations on traditionals like uh, bolognese. We use the bolognese. The commune, the, the commune, the mayor's office of Bologna has given one particular recipe. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Absolutely, they're codified. Those are the recipes that we teach. If you then want to go and do what your neighbor does or spice it up what your grandmother does, you know, they say in Bologna, every doorway in an apartment building has a different Bolognese sauce recipe, which is true because everybody tweaks it the way you want. But to avoid issues and to try and teach the tradition, we go and look up the original recipes that are sort of certified by the place where they originated and um, and we stick with that rather than 
going off on and then you and then, and then it's up to it's up to us and then it's, exactly and <laughs> then it's up to you to do whatever you like but we like to give you the base that is sort of the official uh certified base of what that particular recipe is when whenever possible not everything is codified so. now you just reminded me of a funny pasta story i had i had a zia zia doria mm. who was from bologna mm -hmm. but she lived in rome and every thursday mm -hmm. Because she knew I loved gnocchi, she mm -hmm. would make me gnocchi alla bolognese. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as in Rome, Thursday was the day of gnocchi. Sure. And I was studying at university here, and uh, an American university, actually. Right. And so I was lucky because I didn't have any classes in the afternoon. And this is what would happen. Every Thursday, I'd get to her house, and mm -hmm. she'd have the biggest bowl of gnocchi <laughs> for me. And I would have to eat the bowl myself. Yum. Of course. And then I would promptly get exhausted. She would give me a shot of amaretto. Oh. And then I'd fall asleep on her couch. Wow. And then I'd sleep for like three to four hours, and then I'd go home. And then my grandmother, my nonna, who huh. was in New York at the time, would call me and go, are you on drugs? <laughs> and I was like, what? And I was, she'd be like, Doria told me that you fell asleep again for four hours. Are you doing drugs? And she would like, she was convinced that I was some sort of drug addict. And, How much no you did your And I was like, feed you? I was like, I ate an entire bowl of pasta. Like, not a small bowl, but I mean like. Like a large, Roman style. And I was like, and and I think that it hit my sugar level. Oh. And I might, you know, and, my, no, and this would happen every Thursday, the same conversation. And every Thursday I would go to Doria. I'd be like, Doria, I don't need to eat all of that. And then yeah. she'd look at me because I know I'd offend her. Yeah. And, I, and it would just go on, and that's my. So when that's I think of story. when I think of Bologna, and, I, and now that yeah, I think yeah. of you, I don't know why I'm telling you my, my family story. And that's that was a great story, though. It's it was a good memory. It was a good memory, and and I think that's what you know. I my my favorite part actually was if I was able to get to her house early, mm. I'd watch her as she because she mm -hmm. would cut the gnocchi. She would cut the gnocchi really fast, like almost. Mm -hmm. It was like she had her thumb on the knife in this way that would just go. Ch -ch 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 -ch. So she did. She did the Roman gnocchi, which are all, which are just pillows. They're yes. not ridged. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I have. It's an ongoing argument with Romans. When I teach gnocchi, I teach the ridged gnocchi, which is from Emilia ah. Romagna, where you roll it off of the gnocchi board. And of course, Romans will say that's not gnocchi. Gnocchi is like a pillow. It's got to be, you know. It's like a little tiny perfect, it's just a yeah. perfect pillow. Well, in fact, it's funny that you say that because my um, one of my one of my best friends, her mother, who's also from Puglia, if I'm not mistaken, but she, she is an excellent mm -hmm. cook. And I'm just going to give a shout out to Adriana. Mm -hmm. And um, she, they, they live in Philadelphia now. Um, her mother would make it with ridges, and she knew mm -hmm. that I loved gnocchi. And mm -hmm. so she would make it in a, in a red sauce, mm -hmm. a light tomato sauce, but mm -hmm. with the ridges. And I would hate it. Really? Yeah, because it was like the ridges. It was a mouthfeel for it you. Was, yeah, it was. Well, it's interesting. I, the, my argument quote-unquote and by the way say, that had nothing to do with taste it, it was just the feel it's a mouthfeel exactly well there i think the advantage to having ridges on your gnocchi is that the ridges are going to capture the sauce mm -hmm. better there's also something about making uh gnocchi with ridges you have to flatten your finger your thumb through it so that you're actually flattening and rolling your gnocchi over into sort of like a little half arch looks mm -hmm. like a butter a roll of butter Whereas if you do it the Roman way, which is perfectly um, smooth on the outside and it's just like a little ball, mm -hmm. you have um, a pillow that um, needs to stay in the water longer. And so the center, um, to get it cooked correctly, is going to, it'll take longer and the outside gets a little mushier. And yeah. you don't have a way of having the sauce stick to it. So they're both beautiful gnocchi. But my preference is for the one with the ridges because it captures the sauce. And because you've made that little flip over and it's the same 
sort of width all the way through, and you've got the hole through the middle where it sort of makes the arch, mm. the gnocchi is actually being cooked faster and more evenly all the way through because you don't have to have the heat sink, sink to the middle of a ball rather than actually so cooking I the whole So I think I'm going to have to do a gnocchi class with you then. <laughs> Aside and, and then this the, the butchery class is like has been a long-time favorite of mine. Yeah, gnocchi, gnocchi is three, four types of gnocchi, so that's a lot of fun. Okay, that would be great. Yeah. Well, I would love for you to tell everybody where we can find you. So Grano Farina is um, sort of uh, at the top end of Trastevere, uh, on your way towards the Vatican, just past the um, Orto Botanico, which is the botanical garden. Uh, we're on a secondary street, so it's nice and quiet. Um, and we have a great uh, professionally laid out space. with. Um, it's a great kitchen. It is. It's a good kitchen, all stainless steel. Um, so there's no issue with, uh, keeping things clean and yeah. And we, if we wanted to find you digitally, you would go to www.grano-farina.com. And I know you have a great Instagram page. I love your oh, Instagram. So you. tell everybody how they can find you on Instagram. So on Instagram, it's just Grano Farina. And you can, you know, I always suggest send them DMs if you like any of their pasta or you want to know more information on what they're doing because you guys are incredibly responsive. I love it. Yes, I try and get back to everybody who actually writes us and follows us. And uh, it's sort of a practice of ours to invite you for a cup of coffee and biscuits when you actually get to Rome and want to stop by for say hello. Do you guys do a biscuit class, a cookie class? We do do a cookie class. Oh. We do traditional Italian cookies. We also do a bunch of French cookies. We do all sorts of stuff. Wait, wait, wait. French cookies, which ones? Uh, <laughs> financier. Oh, my. I love financier. Madeleine. Okay. Uh, that's part of one of our French, uh, French desserts class or French cookie class. We're tweaking things. Interesting. Now, I mean, I know I get really pro-Italian, but... Um, I'm very curious. So now, so now you know I'm going to be coming gnocchi, <laughs> financiers, and butchery. Which, yeah. Which my husband, I, I told him I wanted to come for the butchery class, and he's like, really, he's like, what is your obsession? I was like, I don't know. I just when I met Pino, and he was telling me about it, and I was like, I really just need to know how to do this stuff well. Well, it's a great, it's a great way to learn how to not only sharpen your knives so you keep them in good shape. But it's also a wonderful way to learn how to uh, butcher whatever you get from uh, the butcher rather than buying um, your meat already cut up. You save an enormous amount of money if you know how to take apart a chicken or rabbit, whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, and it, he also teaches you how to use every single part of that animal so that you exactly. don't waste. Exactly. That's yeah, what I love. We're big into you know, local everything, no waste reusing absolutely everything. Our garbage bags at the end of classes are so minuscule, it's ridiculous. We should have a compost pile, actually, because it would be, you know, ideal for the very minimal amount of stuff that's left over. Well, Julia, I'm so happy I had a chance to speak with you, and I'm really looking forward to making financiers. I mean gnocchi. (laughs) No, but I'm I'm really looking forward to spending more time with both of you. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Ciao Bella. If you'd like to know more about today's guest, please visit ciaobella.co and click on the podcast link or go directly to ciaobella.co backslash podcast. Want more Italy? You can find all my episodes on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher. When you have time, subscribe to iTunes and rate the podcast. What are you waiting for? And if you want to be part of the podcast, email me or DM me your Italy questions. 
To learn more about me and my work, go to my website, ericafirpo.com, and follow my Italy adventures on Instagram at ericafirpo. Ciao, bella! And a very big thank you and hug to Massimiliano Yonta and Dis to Dis Studios, the producers of Ciao Bella who continue to make me sound and feel great. 